That was the Smiths with a track titled Unlovable from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie, indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Paul Stewart from the Red and Bass band Blue Boy. So, I've got that interview that I'm going to break up and just serve it right up to you in three or four easy-to-digest little segments throughout the show. But to get the party rolling, I'm going to play your favourite and mine. This is from the album Unisex and The Joy of Living.
was Blue Boy with a track titled The Joy of Living that came from their album Unisex, which was both, um, yes, beautiful and uh, 
very melancholic at the same time, in a slightly romantic way, which is our favourite emotional state, especially during the 80s. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, and this week's special guest is Paul Stewart from Blue Boys. So I've got an interview that I'm going to lay on you. Is that what young people say? I don't know. Who knows? It's all very complicated, especially as you get older. So I've got that interview basically coming up very soon. But I'm going to play one more track by the band just to get you you into the sort of, you know, blue boy frame of mind. And uh, yes, it's all about the emotional state of being, isn't it? But this is um, a track titled So Catch Him. And again, I think you'll like it.
There you go, more beautiful sounds from Blue Boy, and that was the opening track on the album Unisex, titled So Catch Him. I know I should play a different um, a track from a different album, really, shouldn't I? But I will do, and that again was on Sarah Records, just for a change. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show. I could give you some admin now, couldn't I? This is, um, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And also, if you want to um, see the archives and any other shows which always feature a uh, special guest, you can um, go to Podbean, Mixcloud or iTunes and just go to C86show and uh, you should be able to find them and uh, think, wow, He's been busy. I know, basically. I've been stalking the 80s indie scene. And um, yes, I should have been a private detective already. But anyway, look, this is going to be the first part of my interview with guitarist Paul Stewart from the Reading bass band Blue Boy. And um, after some amusing chat that I've edited out, I um, began by asking about the 80s musical scene and whether he was also, like me, listened to all those kind of exciting bands that John Peel used to play on a weekly or daily basis. Paul, tell us... The story. Yeah, totally. And prior to um, becoming Blue Boy, we were, we were Keith and I were, were in a band called Feverfew, uh, Reading-based band. And uh, I guess that would have been eighty. I think I've got cassettes somewhere with Tipex on that says rehearsal eighty. Yeah, about eighty-five, uh, eighty-six, something like that. So we were quite jangly and. Um, uh, sort of yeah, two two minute thirty second songs, just knocking them out and and doing lots of gigs and having fun. Yeah, ro- rolling up our jeans and wearing, you know, striker t-shirts. Yeah, we were doing all of that mm. pretty much. So were you? I mean, because most people who got into that sort of eighties indie stuff had sort of grown up with that. You know, I suppose were quite young during punk, but obviously punk had been and gone completely by the time you were hitting guitars and vocals. Yeah, it had, but the the sort of the DIY ethic was still there, and that really appealed. The fact that you could, um, you know, just get a bunch of mates together and uh, uh, and we, we, our first sort of record, if you like, was a flexi disc that um, we sort of uh, clubbed together to do, and, and you know we sold it at gigs for ninety nine p and that sort of thing. So it was very uh, similar to punk in that it was very sort of accessible and street level and there was no you know there were no labels involved you just promoted yourself and knocked out flyers with letter set and then photocopied them at work when the boss wasn't looking that kind of thing so <laughs> it, it was very much like that and um we yeah we we enjoyed it an awful lot we actually supported the brilliant corners once um you mentioning them and uh, uh at, at reading and um the the scene in in uh, most towns was uh, probably like in most towns in Reading was really really vibrant and you could probably see two or three bands every night at one point it was just it was really lively loads of venues putting on really good gigs and um, I mean Reading spawned um, uh, Slow Dive um, bands like that Chapter House they all came from Reading and uh, and a lot a lot of them came and played, it wasn't just the Reading Festival, but they, they played some of the venues at the university and that when they were on tour, so we were lucky we were just about on the radar. Sometimes London would sort of hoover up the big bands and we would Reading would miss out, but it was quite a good place to grow up and um, get into a band. And there was a lot of um, 
independent shops as well, doing clothes and uh, independent record shops, you know, buy a lot of vinyl back then. Yeah. And, uh, and that kind of thing. So it was a really good time to, to sort of grow up and get into that. And although it was on the sort of the coattails of punk, and it didn't sound like punk, it was more, a bit more innocent and you sang about, you know, walking along the river on Sunday afternoon rather than punching someone in the face and spitting at a policeman, I guess. <laughs> so uh, the same but different. Yes. But it was interesting because the 80s, which, um, that golden decade, I mean, it was all very angsty, really, because it didn't ever, I mean, now it all looks kind of golden and lovely, but at the time it was all like, you know, Margaret had just got into, you know, power in 79, and then you had an awful lot of, there was a bit of rock against racism, but then you had all the Red Wedge and the sort of Socialist Workers' Party and, you know, the Redskins. Yeah, Bragg, who just wouldn't shut up about it and was probably probably saying all the right things. But we, we didn't really get too much involved in that. I mean, Keith did sort of make the odd nod to, I think, one of one of our songs um, called Casey Jones. It was one, one of the first ones we re-recorded in a proper studio with proper money. And uh, one line was, I'm going to privatise my love, I'm going to sell my shares. Because it was during that time when there was all that kind of thing going on and um, yeah, the newspapers were full of it, so... We couldn't ignore it really yes. but um yeah we, we didn't we didn't align ourselves too strongly with any one thing or the other we were kind of just whatever the moment you know however the moment took us really yes and did it take a while for you to um get your sound together because i mean most bands because i sort of haven't done quite a lot of these interviews i mean Often, you know, they don't know where it's going to go and where, if it's going to really take off beyond sort of playing to a small venue of, you know, friends and family yeah. who've been dragged in and then suddenly they realise they've created something that probably gets picked up in the back, you know, in those days by people like John Peel who gets played or get a session and that gives everyone that little bit of, oh, right, OK, we could do a tour of the UK now at least, you know, for a few art centres and then the album comes. So I just wondered how long it took for you to create a sound that made it sound a little bit bit better than trying to sound like the Brilliant Corners meets, um, I don't know, the Weather Prophets, probably. Yeah, um, I guess we um, we were always striving to, yeah, sort of sound better and, and more sophisticated, and uh, even even during the sort of, sort of three or four years Fever Few existed, you know, the, we would just never want to play the early stuff that we did we was you know you're only as good as your last pop song really so um and you know that should that should be the creative process obviously you're influenced by lots of different things but your tastes change and your writing changes and you mature and you go off in different directions and the music sort of changes with that really uh, we, we didn't consciously think right let's write, write really grown up songs it was just the case of um we were constantly evolving, and Keith, Keith and I met, gosh, I was probably 14 or 15, I think, quite early on, and uh, we met at church, this good old local church, and uh, he was a few, two or three years younger than me, and we sort of talked about being in a band and that kind of thing, and then I got a guitar for my birthday when I was 15, and I knocked out a few things, and, and we sort of started from there, really. So right from there through to sort of Blue Boy and beyond, we would all we would always be sort of honing our songwriting and um trying to be um you know just 
better than what we'd created sort of six months before, I guess. So when we arrived at sending a tape off to Matt and Claire at Sarah, we sort of folded, uh, we sort of disbanded Fever Few because we, we realised you just can't keep doing that forever. And um, we'd recorded something like 30-odd songs as a band, which we were really pleased with, but we wanted to sort of move on from that. So we did a, a couple of demos ourselves in a, in a friend's um, shed. He had a four-track in a shed down the bottom of his garden. And we sent that off to Matt and Claire. And one of the songs was Clearer, and they sort of picked up on that. And um, Sarah Records were being sold in our, in, you know, in the local record shop, and it was probably the last, um, you know, the last sort of, last sort of true sort of British indie label where all that kind of thing was going on and you could just for sort of one pound you could pick up something quite new and discover a new band it was really really was something um, and it, it was you know it wasn't it wasn't taken seriously by NME and the Melody Maker but that didn't really matter to us because it's all about you know it was, it was talking to us in our language so um, that's that's how we sort of arrived at meeting them and they said um, you know, we'd like to record it sort of properly to re-record it. If you could come up with a B-side, we'll, we'll put it out as a single. Blimey. That must have been a, real, a really nice moment. And obviously also, you, you know, it was quite unusual back in those days, unless you like people like, I suppose, Nick Drake, but you had a cello player as well, um, yes. Gemma Townley, who yes. obviously created quite an ethereal sound, which... For people who grew up listening to people like, I suppose, the Cocteau Twins or Dead Can Dance, we always liked the ethereal, sort of slightly mystical mm. sound. So that was quite a, a kind of a good move, really, wasn't it? Because it sort of did give it an element that was quite different to, I, I suppose, at the time, with the shoegazing and bands like Galaxy 500 and Muzzy Star, which were a little bit more sort of heavy on the feedback, you had a bit more, I suppose, kind of almost folk classical quality. Yeah, I guess you could say that. We, once uh, we'd sort of done the sing single, we realised, oh, damn, we better get ourselves a band together. So, because we didn't really exist as a band. I mean, I played some bass and drums on a couple of the, on Clearer, and, uh, and so it's just him and I, pretty much. Um, so we, we put up ads straight away in um, university, and uh, I moved in, I'm, I moved into a house share, and luckily... The guy, the guy helped me move in who lived, lived in the house was Mark who, who played bass and I spotted his bass and said oh you play bass he said yeah I said oh great so that, that's how Mark sort of got into the band and then uh, Gemma answered uh, Gemma was the only person that answered yeah <laughs> we, I think we originally said uh, backing vocalist because that's that's the sort of lineup we'd had with Fever Few and that worked well with the boy girl vocals Keith often Sort of sang quite high, and the girl would sort of either match that or harmonise with that. So we, we thought we'd try that again, and um, we met and everything in a cafe and had a good chat. And her, her influences and what she said was really made sense and was a great fit. And then she said, "Oh, by the way, I play cello and piano. Brilliant, you're in." <laughs> so um, I didn't really waste any time in sort of throwing sort of songs and ideas her way that we've been working on, and then she just picked up and played on. Happiness and Smiles was one of the first ones we did, and a couple of the others off um, uh, If Wishes Were Horses, the first album. And it ga immediately gave it a really, really sort of fresh kind of 
um, just another element, complete element. I mean, we, we were basically writing pop songs, but with that with that lush string sound, and we'd double up on cello, and she'd often play like a high melody, a high part, and then a low part, so it sounded thicker as well. Um, it just made it sound, you know, really sort of came alive. Um, mm. And it, we're, yeah, I was heavily influenced by Dead Can Dance, Copter Twins, and Shelley and Orphan bands like that as well. It just, I mean, that first LP by Shelley and Orphan is just a masterpiece, I think. Absolutely amazing. And it's all, it, it's basically pop pop music played on classical instruments. Sounds amazing. So, in our own small way, we're probably emulating that a little bit. Okay, that's enough chat for the moment. That was the first part of my interview with guitarist Paul Stewart from the Reading bass band Blue Boy. Um, there's lots more of that, I can tell you. So um, just prepare. But I think we should play some more music. This is going to be the first single by the band that came out on Sarah Records, and he mentioned it in the interview. So hopefully you were paying attention and uh, making notes, because I will test you at the end of the show. But anyway, this is Clearer. <laughs>
And that was the first single by Blue Boy titled Clearer that came out on Sarah Records. Hello, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. And I will just say that um, when I phoned and we did this interview with Paul, um, it was on a landline and it was a little bit hissy, but there's nothing I can do about that. So slight apologies, but that's the joy of... Well, normally it's uh, mobile phones, which can be a bit more tricky, but landlines are normally 100% fab. But this one was a little bit hissy at the time. But anyway, it's still quality chat. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Paul, where I was just talking about Sarah, Sarah Records and compared it to kind of um, from the outsider's point of view and being a fanboy, um, thinking of it was a bit like Laurel Canyon, everybody living on the same street and probably living in the same commune and sharing breakfast, beds and everything. And uh, this was Paul's response. Paul, was it like Laurel Canyon being on Sarah Records? This is the question. We all live down the same street and uh, this week... this. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that that was another thing. And Harvey was sort of uh, obviously doing his own thing. And uh, we'd spoken to him, I think, at a couple of gigs. And um, I mean, to have a second guitar was just absolutely amazing. And Harvey played brilliantly. And, uh, you know, he, he, he probably was like the Sarah personality, the sort of VIP to have in your band. So, yeah, it was a really good fit. And going on tour that first time, we just took everything with us, so we had we were a five-piece. Uh, Lloyd played drums from Feverview, so he came across to us. Mark on bass, me and Keith, Harvey, and Gemma at six. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, really, really good uh, lineup, and we the songwriting process was sort of the same, but everything pretty much sort of came from Keith and I, and then we would sort of when things were half finished or just a. a sort of broad shape of an idea we would sort of play play through a couple of things at a rehearsal and other people would pick things up and just move it along a bit and then we would sort of finish things off together and um so it's a more of a collective effort and uh yeah we um we, we and we were just very lucky that matt and claire wrote back to us and said said yeah to do the single and i think when they released that they had they had a lot of people writing and say wow this is good and this is really good so I think that, that they listen to what people say a lot, said a lot, which was obviously completely the right thing to do. And, um, uh, you know, we were lucky, right, right place, right time. And when you did your tour, did you, did you sort of suddenly see your audience and think, wow, there's all these souls and these are our fans? I mean, was there a certain real, sort of type who came to see you? That was a real eye-opener. We'd done some... Uh, our first sort of gig sort of, uh, on Sarah was at was in our hometown in Reading and then a few people came to that and then then we did this tour and I think the first night was in, in Nottingham a place called the Narrow Boat it's not there anymore sadly and we were a little we were very green very wet behind the ears and nervous and anxious and everything else but we, we got up on stage and everything and there were people that, we've, that had come to see us in London and that had come to see us and singing singing along to the lyrics and everything because they'd got the record and that was a real yeah, gives you a lot of confidence, and you think, "Well, we're doing we're doing the right thing." Yeah, yes, it's amazing you, to see that. And you didn't even have to persuade them to turn up. And obviously, Nothing. you know, doing doing sort of um, a lot of these interviews, I re- sort of realised that most bands have this 
the five-year narrative of you know getting together, doing the single, then possibly a John Peel sh- uh, session, which is obviously the big thing, and then the first album that's going well, the tour's not too bad. Then then it's the second album, but also if anybody ever does America, that seems to finish them off. So, but you managed to last quite a bit longer, actually, almost into yes, yeah, not quite double figures, but quite a while, didn't you? Yeah. Um... I'm not sure how long it was. Well, I, I, we did two al- we did two albums with with Sarah, If Wishes Were Horses and Unisex. We toured we toured the UK just on U- Unisex's release, I think it was, or just before it. Uh, we, we did lots of gigs in London, little you know, um, Mean Fiddler and. Um, Camden Falcon and places like that and supported other Sarah bands we supported Harvest Ministers and bands like that and Heavenly uh, we played Bristol a bit obviously because that's the, the sort of the home of Sarah yes. um, and, and don't forget this is the pre-digital age so everything is via post or a flyer or chatting to someone you can't, you can't log on and no. see what gigs are happening so, you, you know, people very much relied on the little inserts that they put with the singles and see what releases were coming next, and they'd flick through the music press to see which which Sarah record was getting slated that week. <laughs> um, uh, but buying it regardless was the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, we seemed to get... We, we got reviewed once by a DJ, and he just said... I think it was a, it was a ticket pop kiss, and he said, um, this apparently is their second single... Whoever, whoever let them get this far. And that was a review. So, so it really was hit and miss. It could sort of make or break your career. Um, but anyway, back to the question. So then uh, sort of fast forward, and then we did the Bank of England on the Shinkansen label, which Matt started from, from Sarah Records. It was Matt's label. Um, and that was 98... Yes. I think it had its 20th anniversary recently, which made me feel very, very old. Wow. So not quite double figures, I don't think. Probably six years. I guess if you if you added in Feverfew, you almost had 89 to 99, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. And then after that, we we did Edward, we did Beaumont, so we did th- uh, three albums with Siesta, so that went on as well. So. Yeah, that's a, Bank of England's got almost like the halfway point. We did we did three other albums which no one's really heard of, but um, and uh, yeah, and lots of other things. But the other thing with uh, Sarah was they were Japan really just they just loved the output of Sarah, and quite a few of the bands went over there to play. I think um, you know Heavenly went over there, and a few others, and we were lucky enough to be picked as well. So we we. Uh, we embarked on a sort of eight eight day tour, playing to oh gosh, a couple of thousand people. So why did Japan pick pick it up so much? They well they licensed the records through uh, the Quattro organisation, which is a sort of distributor, and um, they they pick sort of like niche stuff um, from all over the place, but. Um, the Japanese just love twee English pop. Yes. You know, and we uh, we sort of turned up on this this uh, this first night to a couple of thousand people. We we got shown this venue. We were walking across this sports hall floor, which was massive. And I said, "Where's the, where's the venue?" And the guy said, "Here." 
<laughs> and I said, I said, Where are you, how many tickets you sold? He said, we sold out. <laughs> so, a bit of a shock. I think the week before we'd played the Camden Falcons, about 35 people, and could hardly hear ourselves sing. So, it was a real sort of culture shock. And they really looked after us really, really well. And, um, yeah, they were sing- singing the words, and they knew all the Sarah bands, and they just loved it. They, they thought it was amazing. Yeah. We'd, we'd, we'd done a sort of impromptu acoustic version of um, Anarchy in the UK, and they just went wild for that, because it's kind of like, oh, a British group do a Sex Pistols song, but of course we <laughs> we completely sort of hammed it up, and with Keith's vocals being very sort of fey, it was quite a, quite a weird version, but they sort of loved all that. Um, so, yeah. Yes. So did you have a moment then when you got to that sort of release in in 98 with the Bank of England to say this is going to be the end to quote Jim Morrison the album although it's, it's quite an accomplished album we're very pleased with it the the sort of scene I'm trying to think back then sort of Britpop had kind of come to an end and I, I just I think we just didn't know where we fitted and we didn't have any major plan or major idea of how we should sound or what we were going to do or or, or whatever. And um, it got, although it got um, in uh, in Mojo magazine, it was indie album of the month, and it got picked up by GLR. One of the singles on the on there got got their single of the week. So it, you know the right people were hearing it, but um, we. I don't know. Looking looking back, back then, we probably just had no idea what we were going to do. But now, I can. It's obvious that you know, the three albums they sort of sit side by side. But it was the sort of start, middle, and end. And um, uh, so we just had a, a sort of rethink, really. So we had a bit of a breather. Yes. Um, because obviously, because Britpop was sort of. Well, it's probably had started to get kind of a bit um, messy by then. But but obviously, we had. You know, people like Polk came along, and then you had all those other bands which weren't so exciting. But obviously, we're getting on top of the pops like Blow and Oasis, yeah. and then yeah. bands like Sleeper and Echo Belly. And then we had, yeah. you know, 90, 97, the great Team Tony election and sort of New Labour. So it's so obviously yeah. just at that sort of wave of enthusiasm, you thought, well, let's just finish. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've, maybe, maybe we didn't want to be seen as trying to be part of that. You know, and um, we, we'd sort of just done this album and uh, we did a single as well, Dirty Mag single, prior to that. That was, I think, that was one of the last Sarah things. It was getting more rocky and more sort of... Uh, I was using lots and lots of guitars. It was hard to do it live because, obviously, the more you layer it in the studio, uh, the more you can't clone yourself when you go out, on no. <laughs> out and play in front of people. Um, so... I I think we just kind of thought we don't we we don't know you know what direction to take and where we're going to go and I certainly we certainly I certainly wasn't listening to modern stuff I wasn't going out and buying Oasis CDs not at all I was going backwards really sort of starting to listen to more soundtrack stuff and uh, Led Baxter and Long Goodwin and Sixties and Fifties and stuff like that so I'd pick up my guitar thinking, right, better come up with something. I just didn't have a clue where to start. Um, 
because you when when you're in a band and you're playing music you sort you sort of want to be accepted by your peers and sound a little bit like the bands that you like so when you don't when you're not into that it's hard to sort of write something because you're thinking I don't all I know is what I don't like <laughs> so I think that was the reason we sort of had a natural breather yes Okay, that's enough excitement for that part of the interview. The second part, there's still more to come and it's going to get more exciting. But anyway, I think we should play another track by the, um, I was going to say Reading Bass Band, but I won't keep saying that because it's a bit tedious. So this is another track by Blue Boy. And I do believe this is the second single that they released on Sarah Records titled Pop Kiss. My God, what a great title.
And that was the um, second single by Blue Boy titled Pop Kiss. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, Shall I do the admin bit? Yes, let's do it. Um, Facebook or Twitter, you can just contact me. Just go to at C86 Show. And also all the other shows back catalogue of The C86 Show has been archived on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Mixcloud. Just go to C86 Show. It's all there. But anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with guitarist Paul um, Stewart. Sorry, I was going to say Fitzgerald, just, just because I know somebody called Paul Fitzgerald and I was having a Proustian flashback. Don't worry. Um, I'll go and see the doctor about that. But um, yes, this is Paul Stewart, definitely. And this is the part of the um, kind of, yes, I love to bring the party down here. When I was talking about uh, the coming, the end of the band, and this is Paul's response. Paul, how did it all happen? Well, the lineup changed completely after Unisex. The lineup changed completely and we, because of, I think, because Sarah was coming to an end, we almost felt like we were, you know, sort of leaving home, you know, moving away from our parents. They'd sort of looked after us and got us through a couple of albums and the tours and everything. And then we just didn't know what we were going to do for the third album, if there was going to be a third album. Matt had said about he was starting another label. Um, so that's when that happened. So the Bank of England didn't have Gemma and Harvey on it. It was a completely different lineup. It was Keith and I, but but we had a different drummer and bass player. It was just four of us. Um, uh, yeah. So when when Sarah's records kind of finished, um, you know, we all just had a rethink and went off in different directions. Harvey and Gemma were playing with uh, sort of Northern Picture Library then as well, I think we toured with in France so I think it was just a shift really but then obviously you, you and Keith you know obviously have that kind of had that relationship like a lot of double acts in music but you know you sort of kept going because you then sort of formed two other bands yeah which is quite yeah. quite impressive because most people, if they haven't quite made it, if they haven't become either Bono or Sting and thinking, well, actually, we're just making too much money to stop and, you know, I, I quite like this lifestyle. I'd just go, right, I'm going to get a job and, and put the guitar away for a few decades. But you obviously thought, no, we're going to rock out. Yeah, and don't forget, all, at the same time, we'd been approached by Fiesta in Spain to do... Um, to do a couple of things of something that um, we we sort of had in our back pocket. We were we were coming up with this kind of sort of pseudo lounge jazz kind of bossa nova type stuff, which we we sort of come up with. Like I, when I said to you before about the right the creative process, things just come out, and sometimes they belong in some somewhere, and sometimes they don't belong. You couldn't put that on a Blue Boy album, so it's a great outlet for this other kind of music we were creating. And Fiesta did two or three EPs um, uh, that we were sort of doing and recording for them in between all the sort of Blue Boy stuff. So when we'd finished Bank of England, we could concentrate, you know, a little bit more full-time on, on um, this uh, sort of fantasy pop project, uh, which we decided to call uh, called Beaumont. And we did... Um, we did, yeah. We started to work on the first LP uh, for them at that time. So we didn't, we didn't really. So that was that was the after the shift. That was kind of a real, a real sort of blessing because it gave us something to really focus on. We had all these other songs that would never have fitted in a sort of blue boy context. 
so we started to find more musicians and we found a trumpeter and a uh, proper sort of um, piano player and everything and started to, to um, go down that road really. Yes. And obviously things, as we all experience, you know, get kind of um, a bit more tricky and um, rather than worrying about second albums. And obviously you had the horrendous experience of your sort of um, partner, Keith, kind of obviously being diagnosed and then dying in the mid, you know, the naughty period, uh, the mid-naughty. Yeah. So that yeah. must have been absolutely hideous, having sort of, um, yes, had those kind of experiences myself. So that, that must have just... Did that just bring everything to a, a swift close? Yeah, we'd, we'd, done, the, we'd done the first uh, album, first Beaumont album, and uh, that, got, that got some nice reviews, and we were really pleased with it. It's a really nice piece of work, and they, they really encouraged us to sort of send over sleeve designs for a booklet and the rest of it, and it was like a blank canvas. We could just go for it. And we, because we weren't competing with our peers and we didn't have to play live and it was almost sort of anti-pop really we could do what on earth we wanted um it's a great really great project to get into but after that keith had become a bit more distant he'd, he'd moved away um and uh we we thought it was getting more and more difficult to meet up just with commitments and work and everything like that and so the right the writing kind of halted a little bit and um the second album called Tiara ended up being mainly sort of instrumental because um he just couldn't make some of the studio time and wasn't wasn't able to give it his all and that kind of thing. And then it was just shortly after that, yeah, he was diagnosed and then um things just yeah, things just happened after that. So um in terms of the writing and recording we um you know, I pressed on because we we'd sort of committed to Fiesta and they wanted this this album, so we carried on regardless and uh but yeah, very difficult time, as you say. Yes. God, it's horrendous actually when things like that start happening and you sort of never imagine it or you can't even think about it when you're in your teens and twenties because everybody no. seems kind no. of like that's just not one of those conversations that happen but then suddenly right. those conversations start to happen all over the place you think oh my god yeah. what's happening now yeah, yeah Who, sure. who's got what so yes that must have and so obviously did that sort of make you feel like Beaumont was was going to sort of have to sort of come to an end well it was it was difficult because um I kind of had to carry on because of this commitment, but I was now on my own pretty much coming up with everything, and before, you know, everything had been done together. And um, also, at this time, we would, we'd just been contacted by, um, and this is a really weird sort of coincidence, especially in the news recently, we'd just been contacted by um, the creative director person at Kate Spade, the... Um, American uh, fashion fashion label, and um, they uh, their person their creative director person had bought um, the first Bowman album in Japan, and thought it fitted with their company style and ethic completely, and they thought it'd be a great idea if they had um, 
Kate Spade Music, so a suite of songs written by us, recorded by us, sold as a CD through their stores. So we just jumped at the chance, and what a great project. But again, sadly, because of the timing, this then just fell back for, for, for me to get on with it, and, um, and uh, that's what, what I did. It was very hard, but <laughs> you commit to things, and you sign pieces of paper and money's involved, you kind of have to go with it. So, so yeah, that happened, and um, and of course, uh, not a few weeks ago, Kate Spade um, was in the news, having um, having died tragically. So, yeah, it's all um, it's all strange how these things turn out, but um, it is what it is. Yes, and that and that was the album that you did for her or them, um, No Time Like the Past. Uh, no. That was to that was their own album called Kate Spade Music, and it was sold through their shops, through their stores, and, on, and through their online stores. And I don't think you can get hold of it now. There might be a few running around somewhere. Um, so that was then, and then went back to the studio uh, for a third album, No Time Like the Past, which uh, I just worked on with Kath, the, the singer at the time. And uh, I got a few musicians, friends, and I knew. And uh, B.J. Cole played the um, lap steel guitar on that. Um, bit, bit kind of Americana influence, and uh, yeah, that ended up being the third and last one LP. Wow, cheesy, crazy. So, did you then, after all that, did, did you just think, God, I've just got to have a break from the music industry? <laughs> um. Not necessarily, but the way things were going then was was that, um, I mean, I talked to Siesta about what they might want to do, but the, they started to go very much sort of digit, down the digital road. And so um, I don't think the album sold particularly well. I mean, they're only small runs anyway because they're an independent and, you know, mail order. And, and distribution, distribution sort of channels changed back then and pe- people down, started to download. They weren't buying... CDs like like they used to. So um, I think it just came to a point where you know they they weren't going to do another album, and um, so we sort of we sort of parted our ways, sort of on friendly terms. But but um, yeah, and then I kind of I kind of just thought, right, what the hell do I do now? So I just carried on writing and recording and um, did a few various things, but nothing major. But but you see, record labels and, and starting a band and recording, that doesn't, it, back then it didn't happen in the way it had been. I'd grown up with a traditional way of, you know, starting a band and trying to, trying to make a record and do a demo tape and go around and, and sort of promote it that way. But that all kind of stopped with sort of digital age and people listening to MySpace and Spotify and that kind of thing changed it already. Yes. I mean, did you manage, because that's the one thing that I've also noticed, um, sort of navigate the administration and the publishing? Did you, have you managed to sort of keep hold of your music and sort of have it catalogued so that it's there? Because some people sort of sign, there's a couple of record, well, there's one particular record label that if you ever mention it to certain people, they go into a bit of a sort of strange silence shock. And they kind of like, can we, can we just skip that? Because that brings back too many memories, and I'm still yeah, haunted by yeah. it. <laughs> no, no, no. Just, just, despite, despite the sort of 
sort of DIY sort of ethic of Sarah. They're very organised, and there's, there's, I think Sarah Publishing Limited is the the sort of holding company which handles all the the royalties and rights for, for all the bands, and so everything's organised and comes through them, and it's all very, um, it's all very well ordered. So, yes. yeah, there's kind of like what they call, um, yeah, sort of like digital royalties and things like that still, and um, so it all still happens. There's people, you know downloading sea urchins in Italy and you know the guys will get their 50p at the end of the year so it will yes. still happen well I think most people seem to get 60 pound don't they and then have to divide it amongst five people or four people <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's just sort of I don't know if people 60 pound always seems the figure that people mention to me so it's like oh, mm. fair enough but anyway it must be still delightful that people are still listening I mean what would you kind of say to your 18-year-old self starting out in music, which I know is a bit tricky because it has changed so much. But, you mm. know, what sort of advice would you, you know, would you wish you'd got when you were 18 starting out in that interesting world that was rock and roll? Good question. Um, I, don't think, I don't think we would have done anything different. We had some really great opportunities and... Uh, um, we were very lucky. So like, no, I wouldn't want to change anything. Um, we never set out on this odyssey of making millions of pounds because we're realistic, first and foremost. But also, the sort of things we were coming up with were not. We're never going to appeal to. Yeah, we didn't come up with commercial music, and so it's always going to be niche. You know, it's, it's you know, take a band like the June Brides or someone like that. You know. I mean, I, you know, you think they're fantastic and you've got their records, but oh, I bet they don't live in a six-bedroom house with three Bentleys in the drive. It just doesn't happen because it's not, hasn't got that mass appeal. So, because we were part of those that sort of world, we never had any grand, grand ambitions. So to even go on tour, and we toured France and, uh, say, Japan and the UK, and played in front of a lot of people, and, you know, released released a, a whole bunch of records. That was pretty much, that was way, way beyond our expectations starting out. So, my advice to my 18 year old self um, don't buy a guitar with a tremolo arm because when you break a string on stage, it all goes out of tune. It's horrendous. <laughs> that happened a couple of times, so I wouldn't do that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you must be chuffed though, because obviously, with, with some labels or some bands you know their music does slightly disappear but you were slightly fortunate in the Sarah records in the sense that it has managed to sort of develop probably more critical and you know exciting kudos than it did back when it was happening which you know like a lot of people were quite sort of unpleasant especially the music journalist Mm. so so when the enemy sort of went down I noticed quite a lot of people saying good (laughs) <laughs> yeah, mostly you know artists and band members. Yeah, well. it's funny that, and I, that's something I, t- I don't know that I sh- I can't explain that. I mean, we did see a, a sort of new general new wave of interest with the the film that came out um, and um, uh, My Secret World and uh, the book by Michael White, Popkiss, and that scene, you know, a few gigs and, and some reviews, and there's just so many people have come forward it's almost as if it's it's all right now to say you like it whereas back then um it wasn't you know it wasn't cool maybe to say that um but um 
Yeah, and we've seen... We did a gig last year, um, and uh, uh, we, we, played a, we played an acoustic set. And, yeah, there were people in the audience that were clearly not born when <laughs> yeah, the record came out, which is... Uh, yes, fantastic, but, very, you know, it shows, I guess, the sort of... Um, the sort of evergreen nature of the label and its output, you know, yes. which is great. And obviously as a fan, I mean, it sometimes matters more than other times, but, you know, even though, you know, one doesn't really want a band to reform, you know, you're quite... You'd like to think that the members, you know, that were still with us kind of get on OK. Is that the case mm. with, you know, Blue Boy? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, without that key element... Um, we, we, you know, it's it's not going to be a reunion, but um, we've all, you know, we've um, Gemma's a, a, a fairly successful author. Um, Harvey um, still doing music and still playing. Uh, Lloyd ended up going. I think he moved to New Zealand or Australia. I think. Um, and Mark, Bailey, Mark, the first bass player, moved back up north, I think, with his family. So still, we've not been in the same room together, but there's no, um, you know, it, it, it's just it is what it is. Yes. Well, that's been amazing. And that really is going to be the last part of the interview with Paul Stewart. A big thank you for giving me the time for that. And um, if um, yes, there was quite a lot to digest in that interview. But I, this actually, I just realised, took place in the, um, I think it was June last year. And when you mentioned Kate Spade, I know, sort of from Sarah Records to Kate Spade, who was a sort of a New York American luxury fashion design house. <laughs> And unfortunately, uh, <clears throat> she uh, committed suicide around the same time that I did that interview. So um, it all slightly ties in when he was talking about his musical combo, Beaumont. Anyway, if you're still listening, that's a miracle. But um, I thought I'd try and explain a little bit of that because, um, yes, that was a bit of a conversation that even you may have um, not been able to follow. That dear listener, is going to be the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. And um, yes, I will be sort of still bringing out more um, specials on the C86 show. But I'll leave you with another track by the band. He says, confidently looking down at his notes and not realising what he'd done. Yes, this is going to be um, a track titled Love Yourself. Have a great week. <laughs>